This podcast is made possible by Sage Intact and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Tom Stewart, CFO of SecureAuth Corporation, and you're listening to CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 212. How as a finance leader are you driving driving change in your organization? How are you driving change within your organization? In this episode, we speak to Dave Cohn, CFO of Taylor Morrison, a top national home builder. You know, we've done a lot of work in the last, call it 15 months. We did have some Canadian operations, uh, primarily in Toronto and Ottawa. And uh, we made the decision in December of 14 to sell that piece of the business uh, predicated on best use of cash. We were looking at investing in that market. Uh, it was on roughly a 16 or 17 year uh, uh, growth cycle uh, within the home building industry. And uh, we didn't see a lot more runway kind of beyond that. So we thought our best returns could come uh domestically in the U.S. So by selling that business, it freed up some capital. And we turned around and we've made now three acquisitions uh, in the last 12 months to help grow our U.S. footprint. Listen to our complete interview with Dave after these words from our sponsor. It's a question every growing business must answer. How do you scale your organization to accommodate growth? while reducing risk. Sage Intech provides the instant visibility into deep operational and financial requirements that inform decision-making when scale is top of mind. By automating error-prone manual tasks and allowing your team to focus on the analysis of more accurate information, Sage Intech provides the visibility required to confidently scale your organization. Sage Intact is the only AICPA preferred provider of cloud financial management software. Hello, we're speaking to Dave Cohn, CFO of Taylor Morrison, a top national home builder. Prior to Taylor Morrison, Dave was with PetSmart Incorporated for a uh, close to nine years, where he served in several roles, including vice president of investor relations and treasury. Prior to that, he was vice president of financial planning and analysis. Dave, welcome. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. So it's been a while since we've had a, a CFO guest from the construction sector. So we look forward to uh, learning a bit about that sector today with you. Let's learn a little more about you and uh, those career milestones you feel prepared you for the CFO role. Yeah, I mean, there's several things uh, along the way in a career, uh, especially doing this for a little bit more than 20 years uh, from a finance perspective. But, you know, I think starting out uh, was important. You know, trained accountant, worked uh, back in the day in the big six, uh, so dating myself a little bit. But, you know, cut my teeth in that public accounting with a focus on SEC uh, companies. So I learned a lot about, uh, you know, accounting systems and the reporting, and that really helped give me the called the baseline foundation uh, for my finance career. Uh, as I left public accounting and went more into the private side, uh, I continued to do uh, the accounting, but at some point I moved over to uh, what I call the dark side, the financial planning and analysis. Uh, and that gave me a whole new appreciation for an analytical approach of finance to, to operations. 
And uh, I, I think that also kind of catapulted me into wanting to to get more into the operations of, of the business. Um, and this was primarily at my, my prior place. So, um, but one of the, probably the greatest attributes, uh, you know, in, in this process along the way is I spent probably two to three years in, in several disciplines. So, uh, you know, in accounting to FP&A, I did uh, about three years in treasury, uh, three years in investor relations. Uh, and investor relations was really important because, uh, you know, you go back to starting with the accounting side, you get into the analytics, and then it's about messaging uh, the information to the employees, uh, to the board, to the shareholders. So that really kind of completes that gap. And then I wrapped up kind of taking some of that expertise back into, uh, into the FP&A world. So let's find out a little about uh, Taylor Morrison and the home building market. What's going on there today? Yeah, the... Home market is is very competitive. Uh, you know, there's really the two components to it. You have the new home, which is where we operate, and uh, then we also compete with the resale. Uh, what's interesting about the new home business, it really hasn't changed much in the last 40 years. We continue to build uh, homes generally the same way. Uh, we've, you know, found ways to become a little bit more energy efficient, but at the end of the day, it's still uh, very similar. So uh, when you look at the other uh, new home builders, you know, we compete to some extent, uh, but really there's no one that you compete with nationally across the board. So it could be in a certain part of the country you uh, compete with Builder A, but in another part of the country you compete with, with Builder uh, B. So it's very much a, a mixed bag. But some of the greatest competition is on the resale side. Uh, generally, there's a small premium for a new home versus a resale. So it's really important that uh, you know, you make the connection of that value proposition of a new home. How long does that value proposition r- stick with a new home? Is it only a new home once? Uh, well, you know, it depends. A lot of it really comes down to uh, the type of home and the community that it's built in. One of the things that we pride ourselves at Taylor Morrison is it's not just building a home. It's actually building a community and building a lifestyle uh, with a nice home on top of that. Uh, you know, one of our uh, sayings is, you know, homes inspired by you. And that's a that's a critical piece because this is going to be a place where people come uh, to live their life, possibly raise kids, but truly just kind of live out their dreams. So if you can embody that in a community, it becomes something that will last for, for quite some time, far beyond uh, when the newness of the home wears off. Can you give us some sense as to where um, Taylor Morrison ranks among um, home builders today, national home builders today? Sure. We are, the. if you take uh, 2015 uh, as the benchmark, we're the seventh largest home builder in the U.S. Uh, there's over 20 public home builders, and then, as you can imagine, hundreds of uh uh, more regional and, uh, you know, single market, uh, builders. So we're definitely, you know, one of the largest out there. We have significant scale. Uh, and that, that it's critical in this industry. Uh, what we generally focus on is trying to be top 10 in each of our individual markets. Uh, that helps, uh, obviously get, uh, attention from the land sellers. You, know, you want to get, you know, first look at, uh, you know, the best land there is out there. And then a lot of what we do is outsourced to the trades from a home building perspective. So again, that scale is important. You want to make sure that we're able to, 
uh, get the trades we need to deliver the home. So, so that means, uh, uh, having the right scale, having the job sites ready for them, uh, making sure that the, the site is safe, uh, so they can enhance their productivity, which obviously benefits us. Now, this company went public a few years back. Were you there at that point in time? Yeah, I was. It's actually, uh, you know, I would argue, uh, one of my funnier stories with my time at the company. Um, the, this was back in 2012 when I was, uh, going through the interview process, uh, with the organization and, and there was a, a hope that the company would go public in, uh, the fall of 2013. So roughly a year later, uh, by the time I accepted the job, that was still the plan. But in that three week interim period, uh, the company had kind of changed direction on that. So, uh, I arrived at work, uh, on my first day, eight o'clock at eight thirty. I had my first meeting with the leadership team. And, and in that meeting, uh, I found out that we were going public and it was starting that day. Uh, and as I was trying to digest that, then the next bit of news was, oh, and by the way, we're going to acquire uh, a company, uh, which was, uh, Darling Homes a builder in Texas, and we were going to close that by the end of the year, which was uh, uh, in about two and a half months from from that time frame. So you take those two big pieces of news, and then you couple that with uh, the Friday before I started, my wife let me know that we were having our third child. It definitely made for uh, an action-packed, let's call it a first six months at the organization. Uh, so I spent, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of time uh, – uh, in New York, kind of pushing SEC documents, getting to uh, know the company, get to know, you know, the folks on the team, uh, then also, you know, managing a, a baby on the way. Yeah. Had you done acquisitions at PetSmart or yeah. been involved in them? Yeah, oh, definitely. Uh, there was there was uh, some small acquisitions uh, done at PetSmart. Um, but throughout my career, I've actually been on kind of both sides of uh, buyers and sellers. So, uh, that wasn't anything, uh, new, new for me. Um, what I'll tell you is what I've never done is, uh, you know, three within, you know, a 12 month period. Uh, and it's something that as an organization, we didn't set out to, uh, to do that. Generally speaking, there's, you know, a, a gap between buyers and sellers on the M&A side. And there's, you know, brief windows of time where that gap seems to close to, uh, something manageable. And, uh, you know, typically we, uh, we look for builders that, uh, you know, we have relationships with. We know, um, we know their product. We know the people there have a lot of, uh, belief in them. And it just happened to work out that three opportunities came along the way, uh, here in, uh, 2015 and, and, and 20, and early 2016 as well. Um, so like I said, not something we set out to do, uh, but as an organization, you have to be nimble and you have to be ready for that. And, uh, you know, I would say it's a, it's a muscle that the company had, uh, but we continue to strengthen that and put us in a spot to, to be able to handle three in such a short period of time. Were there specific skill sets that you needed to add to the finance team to uh, take on uh, these acquisitions? Uh, you know, I that was done over time. Uh, when I first arrived at the organization, again, one that was, uh, you know, not two earlier uh, subsidiary of a UK company, um, the finance team wasn't wasn't necessarily built out to be a publicly traded company, um, nor maybe handle uh, the acquisition front. Uh, so, you know, I spent some time, you know, understanding the, the finance team, understanding the needs, trying to marry that with our, our strategic direction. 
uh, a lot of what the finance team had was was outsourced. So we looked at bringing a lot more of that, you know, into the organization, uh, and that really included uh, financial planning and analysis and investor relations. Uh, those were probably the, the two biggest gaps. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of talented folks here in the Phoenix market, and we were able to, uh, to attract some of that top talent and uh, start to build out the team from there. And it's actually one that, you know, given my role, uh, I have a great team in place, uh, one that I, I have great faith in. And uh, they take a lot of that kind of day-to-day pressure off me to allow me to focus more, focus more strategically uh, on the operations of the business. So help us understand better uh, your day-to-day here. What are the numbers that you're always reaching for to take a peek at? What, what, uh, what are the important numbers for you? Yeah, you know, from a key metric standpoint, Jack, I, sales trends, uh, obviously, kind of at the front of the line. We're looking at that every day, every week. Um, but then, you know, also the basics, so return on invested capital, asset turn, uh, working capital, kind of the debt leverage. It is a... Uh, uh, and high investment industry, and then of course the basics around the P&L and uh, and EPS. Um, but I, I'd tell you one of the greatest benefits I get is actually connecting with the the field uh, finance leadership kind of across our uh, divisions. Uh, there I'm getting some of that that frontline in, insight, helping me to uh, understand maybe some of the trends that I'm seeing and some of the potential trends going forward. Uh, so kind of beyond the numbers, it's really that communication aspect with, with those living it on the front line. Now, I think you arrived at Taylor Morrison after the downturn, but and you, you already said that the industry really hasn't changed a whole lot in 40 years. But would people tell you or as you arrived there, did they tell you a lot's changed in relation to having uh, everything that was experienced uh, in the wake of the downturn? Yeah, very much so. You know. My comment around uh, it hasn't changed much. It's really more kind of in the bricks and sticks of, of building a home. I would say the industry and the philosophy has changed pretty significant. I think there was a time when uh, things were so good it was hard to see that that there was an end. And as you know, that end came you know fairly abruptly. So I think that did change perspectives on you know how do you manage uh you know beyond a particular cycle you need to manage kind of the whole cycle for home building the cycle generally starts uh maybe at more of a down period where it becomes pretty capital intensive there's a lot of acquisitions around uh new land uh you know to build up your pipeline uh and it typically takes um you know depending if the if the land needs to be developed or if it's already finished it could be one to three to four years until you start delivering some clothings uh, out of that land. So there is a point where it's a lot of spend. You're going to be lower on your returns. Um, but then as the market starts to uh, increase, the demand starts to increase, the volume of clothings obviously starts and you begin to uh, monetize those assets. What we saw in the downturn was it was such a steep uh, incline around the demand. And uh, uh, it was very hard for supply to to keep up with it. Uh, obviously, macro conditions, the prices of homes, uh, you know, led to led to the downturn. So you saw a lot of uh, you know valuation adjustments on land, which impacted you know public companies. Uh, you know, in this cycle, uh, I think people are being a little bit more prudent in uh, their land acquisition. 
making sure that, you know, it's something that they, they feel can live in, you know, a little bit more of a, a volatile environment. I don't think anyone expects uh, this recovery that we're in to be kind of a straight line up and to the right. It's actually going to have a fair amount of volatility. It's still going to grow uh, year over year. It's still going in the, in the right direction. But we're running around uh, 1.2 million starts uh, per year. Kind of the, the norm that everyone expects in the industry is about 1.5. So we still have uh, a ways to go to kind of close that gap. And if you compare that to the, uh, the upturn in the cycle, we we're about 2 million uh, starts. So even at 1.5, we're a little bit below, but that's actually a, a nice, healthy number to strive for. Probably some of the biggest challenges to get there isn't going to be so much on the demand side as it is on the infrastructure. Labor is uh, a real constraint for, for our industry. A lot of folks uh, left the industry during the downturn and uh, you, you chose not to come back. They chose other professions. Plus, schools uh, cut out a lot of the construction programs. So we're not bringing in uh, new, fresh talent into the construction industry. In fact, if you look at the average age of uh, plumbers and uh, electricians, they're about 54 years old. So we're kind of aging out in, in that segment. So it's going to take a while to build back up that infrastructure. I see the firm is in about nine states today. And uh, is, is the ge- geographic footprint something that, you expect to grow over the next year? Uh, it's possible, but I'd tell you, uh, you know, we've done a lot of work in the last, call it 15 months. We did have some Canadian operations, uh, primarily in Toronto and Ottawa, and uh, we made the decision in December of 14 to sell that piece of the business uh, predicated on best use of cash. We were looking at investing in that market. Uh, it was on roughly a 16 or 17 year uh, uh, growth cycle uh, within the home building industry. And uh, we didn't see a lot more runway kind of beyond that. So we thought our best returns could come uh, domestically in the U.S. So by selling that business, it freed up some capital. And we turned around and we've made now three acquisitions uh, in the last 12 months to help grow our U.S. footprint, which also adds uh, a little bit more uh, geographic diversity to help, you know, offset some of that that we lost in our Canadian operations. So uh, we have three that were uh, in the process of, you know, going through our integration process. Uh, you know, M&A is, is difficult, but the real challenge is always on the integration side. Uh, it's going well, but it just takes a little bit of time. So. I would actually characterize us more in the mode of kind of digesting those acquisitions, focused on execution uh, for the most part here in uh, 2016. Uh, but never say never. Uh, you know, we're always keeping a, an eye out for for a good deal. And if it's one that fits into our uh, strategic portfolio, then it's something that we'd definitely consider. Now, looking back, uh your tour of duty at, at PetSmart, one would imagine that's quite a different industry. What are some of the perhaps similarities uh, in the finance leadership role? Uh, and and what, what are some of the big differences, would you say? Yeah, it's it's uh, funny you say that. There There's actually probably a little bit more on the similarity than one would, you know, expect. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, uh, we're still selling a product. Uh, now, be it, you know, slightly higher average selling price for a home than maybe a, you know, a basket full of goods such as dog food. 
Um, but there is still uh, that value proposition. You know, it's still important to connect that to to the consumer. Uh, there's a lot to be said around uh, understanding your customer and doing analytics, uh, you know, from a home building perspective to know what the type of homes that these individuals uh, want and, and need. Uh, so the selling effort is, you know, uh, I would argue pretty similar. Um, when you get into kind of the financial aspect of it, uh, the numbers are simply the numbers. So I think industry to industry, there's not much different other than, you know, there are certain key metrics uh, that, you know, we'll focus on, uh, and home building maybe versus, uh, uh, you know, retail. Some of the similarities would be, you know, revenue per square foot. Uh, but some of the, the differences may be, um, you know, an average basket, uh, price in, uh, on the retail side, uh, versus on the home building side. It's obviously more return driven, uh, given the capital intensive nature of what we do. So when you arrived there, did you have a an idea of the type of job you wanted to create or a, a type of finance philosophy that you brought with you? Yeah, absolutely. And and something that I, you know, developed primarily at my time at PetSmart. Um I, I believe that a finance organization should be customer centric first. So the finance team uh needs to be there to support the internal customers. Because uh, at the end of the day we're asking those individuals to, to uh, support our buyers of our home. So you've got to really complete that chain and be customer-centric, uh, be in a position to help the business uh, in any number of ways, uh, you know, either through uh, analytics, providing some financial insight, um, you know, whatever, whatever the need is. Uh, the next is I'm actually very big on data-driven decision-making. Uh, you know, I do like to run various correlation analysis, look at all the numbers, and uh, try to get to a point to see where the, the data takes us. Now, that said, you know, you always got to round that out with uh, taking in outside influences, and, and, you know, there's always a little bit of a gut there. But the goal is to provide better advice to, to make decisions. Um, from... Uh, you know, I'd say probably the key thing for me, though, is is really around people, process, and systems. Uh, you know, it starts with with the people. Um, that is uh, that's the most important part, and you know, something that can provide a competitive edge. Uh, but it's all about hiring uh, and retaining the best talent. Uh, and then, if you're able to do that, you can get the most out of your out of your processes. Uh, and then, once you have established processes, you can get to uh, enhancing the systems. I'd tell you here at Taylor Morrison, uh, we've done a lot of work around the people aspect. Uh, we're, you know, right now I would say we're, we're in that more, uh, refining of the process, uh, and a bit on the system. So we're, we're moving our way through, through that journey. Uh, it just takes a little bit of time, but I, you know, I'm, I'm actually very confident the, the changes that I've seen the organization make here in the last few years. Okay, we now move to our mentoring round where we ask you several quick questions uh, to offer advice to aspiring uh, finance leaders. Dave, have you had a mentor or mentors during the course of your finance career? Absolutely. I mean, there's been several along the way uh, that have really helped me to uh, understand the type of a leader that I want to be uh, and a lot of the messages that they uh, provided and the lessons they instilled in me. You know, I still... I still keep those uh, 
front and center in mind. In fact, uh, I carry around, uh, you know, my book to take notes in. And uh, every time I finish up a book, I grab the next one and I, I jot down uh, some of the, the lessons that they taught me just as a, a quick reminder. Um, and a few of those, you know, are simply, you know, learn and stay focused on how the company makes money. You, you can't lose sight of, sight of that at the, at the end of the day. Uh, visiting the field often, uh, it's important to get there into the front lines because, uh, you know, if you're sitting, you know, in an office, you might not be hearing those important details or you might not understand a particular trend that's, that's coming about. So it's best to get it from those that are living it every day. Um, you know, when I first got here, it was about getting to know the team quickly. Uh, since then, it's really about, you know, staying engaged uh, with the team. And then consistently managing expectations, and that, that goes for my peers, uh, working with the board, and, of course, the shareholders. And then lastly for me, uh, it's communicate all the details until I, I build the trust level that I want. Uh, it's important for me to, to message, you know, what what I stand for and uh, let people know how I want to lead. What is that piece of information you wish someone had told you uh, as you stepped into the CFO office? What is that piece of information that you wish you have had? You know, I think I was given it. I think it's the difference between uh, listening to it and understanding it. And, and a lot of it comes with patience. Uh, so that's probably the greatest thing. You, you do have to be patient um, and at the same time be quick to react. Uh, but, you know, I, I think I always had this, uh, you know, call it a perception, you know, at the CFO level, it was pretty easy. You know, you say and it gets done. Uh, and it's just, it's just not that simple. Um, there's things that, you know, you have to weigh the pros and the cons. Uh, something might seemingly seem easy, but there's a lot more to it. Um, so it is really, you know, putting yourself in a place to, to understand. Um, I'll tell you probably some of the, some of my style that shifted is I've, I tend to be more of a listener than I do, uh, a speaker now. Uh, because I find that I learn a lot more listening than, than if I'm talking. So trying to take all that into account and put that as part of the process to make that right decision, uh, and not to, you know, rush to judgment. Is there a personal habit, uh, that you believe has contributed to your professional success? Yeah, absolutely. For me, uh, it's really trying to, you know, strike balance. Um, you know, this is a, it's a demanding job. It's one I love. Uh, and then I have a, a great family, a beautiful wife, three outstanding daughters. They age and ranges from two to 14. So home is pretty busy as well. So, uh, for me, I, I like to run. So, uh, I've just gotten to the point where I get up every morning at 4:30, and, and I generally will go out and run for 45 minutes, uh, or an hour. And, and that's really kind of my time for the day. Uh, and it gives me the opportunity to, to process, you know, what's going on, um, be it professionally or, or personally, and uh, that quiet time to kind of think it through. And generally, if I, uh, I will pick one one topic for each run, uh, maybe it's a challenge that I'm trying to work through or, or something that I'm trying to prepare for, and I use that time to kind of go through the process. So generally, by the time I'm I'm done, I, at least I have uh, maybe not the right answer, but at least I know what my next steps are going to be. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, you know, 
I've read so many different ones, and, and for me, uh, a lot of the themes are similar, so it's really important to find the one that, that talks to you that you're able to connect with. Uh, and uh, probably the, the greatest example of that for me was um, 360-degree leadership by uh, John Maxwell. Um, that one really helped me to understand, uh, you know, leadership comes from, you know, managing uh, those you're responsible for, you know, your peers, and even to some extent managing up. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's kind of that never-ending chain of the flow of communication and uh, working with folks to achieve an objective. Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We have more of our interview after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Uh, so it really is managing through the integration of the, com- of the new companies we acquired, uh, kind of digesting those businesses and bringing them uh, into the fold and trying to drive the synergies that, that we expect. Uh, and then really kind of helping to refine our processes uh, in finance as well as in other disciplines. There's a lot that finance can do to support uh, reporting, you know, be it around uh, construction cycles, uh, you know, purchasing information, um, doing various analytics. So we're really at that point where we're trying to enhance uh, our processes so that's what a vast majority of, of 16 is going to be. And then as we look kind of beyond that, uh, we'll look for gaps in the systems where if there's ways to be more efficient, uh, there might be some systems that we want to want to go after. But now we're at to the point where, you know, we just want to execute, uh, execute a little bit more efficiently than than we have. And I feel like we have the right folks in place to do that. Dave Cohn, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. Hi, it's Jack. At CFO Thought Leader, we're interested in hearing from you. We want to find out what you would like to hear more of or less of. And so we've created an ever-so-short survey in order to learn from you. The survey is now available right on CFOThoughtLeader.com's homepage. It's open to career finance executives of every rank. Meanwhile, it's that time of year again. CFO Appreciation Day is quickly approaching, and we are once more firing up our kiln and making our CFO Thought Leader Mug 2019 edition available to survey takers who enlist two or more of their finance team members to complete the survey. We'll mail you our also coveted CFO Thought Leader Mug 
at zero cost. So visit us at cfothoughtleader.com and give us an earful. We would greatly appreciate it. Some rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you.